0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Cavnick here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week?
1: I've been wonderful, Gary, and I'm enjoying this fantastic Indian summer and uh, hoping that it goes on a little bit longer.
0: I assume, Michael, you were as delighted as I was with the new intervention of IBEC's Danny McCoy in national dialogue. Mr. McCoy, who is the head of IBEC, the uh, power of IBEC, pretty much IBEC in a person. IBEC, for those who <laughs> were being effectively the uh, representative voice for larger companies in Ireland, the multinationals would all be IBEC.
1: Yeah, it it is in the ghastly language of today, it is a major stakeholder when it comes to policy development across sort of industrial or economic policy.
0: Mr. McCoy, therefore, as the voice of Irish large business, or at least the multinationals, has said that we need a bigger state and we need to pay more taxes to have that society, the society we require, Michael.
1: Yeah, I know. I was talking to an economist uh, and somebody who I I think would know both the organisation and the individual involved well, and he told me that when he actually saw the tweet, that he said he felt much like a character in a bad Victorian play. He felt like being one of those ladies who cripped. He gripped his pearls and swooned onto his swooning couch. <laughs> he said, I literally could not believe my eyes. But Then he said, on reflection, eh, maybe in the context of the way, the direction that IBEC has been going over the last little while, maybe it wasn't that surprising. But you have to say on the face of it, the leader of the largest sector of Irish, the, the Irish private economy, which employs m- most of the people who are funding this state. And remember what, I I can't remember offhand, but the figure is something like what, the top 1% of earners in this country pay something like 27% of the income tax. Very large numbers don't pay any income tax at all. We have what is commonly described as being the most progressive tax system uh, in the OECD. It just, on the face of it, Gary, it seems like an odd thing. I mean, surely there are enough people advocating for a bigger state and a larger tax take shall we say, on the left or in the non-business sector without the large business sector having to row in and do their job as well?
0: This is just my personal opinion, Michael, on this. But I think if you are a business owner actually interested in pro-market policies or pro-business policies in a general sense, IBEC is probably not your home. A lot of the interventions I see from IBEC are effectively statist. And I think a lot of that, is because IBEC is an incredibly political organisation. They're one of the first groups that started reaching out to Sinn Féin. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but IBEC generally have a very large amount of interest in who is going to be in the next government and how they can work with them. Also, I think some of their policies they support because their organisations are so large that an increase in regulatory burden doesn't really hurt them, but provides a, provides a barrier to new entries into their areas. So. I mean, if you are a large multinational and someone says, oh, you need to do these 10 new types of reporting, that's fine. Like you'll just put someone on it. But it hurts the smaller people in the space because that might be a significant resource allocation for them. So I think businesses that are that are interested in um, pro-market policies rather than that sort of stuff are mostly in ISMI or should be in ISMI.
1: Yeah, I think that it, it's funny you should say about the, the cost of the regulatory burden because I was having a conversation very recently with a friend of mine. And I commented naming a, a number of uh, operators, say, in the grocery sector or large businesses who would be competing with, with smaller smaller independent operations. And they tend to pay actually quite well. They do very good management uh, training uh, systems. And they tend also to be pretty supportive both of incre- increases in minimum wages, With shall we say within reason, not maybe another $10 as, as they did in Portland or something, but, and also, uh, you know, higher safety standards, higher levels of regulation of a certain kind. And he, and he said, well, you know, I, I'm surprised by that, but I think that's very admirable, isn't it? And I said, really? Do you think it is? He said, well, but, you know, they're supporting the, the poor. I said, no, they're not. They're basic. These are very useful tools for them in order to make sure that the smaller guys, smaller independent people who can't afford to pay that level, who can't afford... Particularly when it comes to regulation, because these the these they're so large, they already have so many people involved and experienced and expert in these kinds of areas that the extra regulation isn't a problem for them. But if you have a Say for example, simply a limited space, and you have you're told, well, you have to use that amount of space now. For an extra toilet, or you need you you have to have extra washing space, or you can't you can, you have to move that over there. and you can't have those two things together. Say it's a food thing. All of those regulations make material difference to the capacity for you to make a profit and to stay in business. So for them, they I think it's it's nothing to do with morality or desire to help out the little man. It's because it's precisely a desire to to close down the little man that they do it. And just as a predicatory point, I don't think it's a question, it shouldn't be a question for for, for an organization, say for people like or say people like DBI, we're not pro-business, we're pro-citizen. And we believe that the market is the most efficient way of generating goods across the board, social goods, economic goods, cultural goods, and defending the rights of the citizen. I don't know if IBEC is necessarily terribly interested in that.
0: On the topic of finance, Michael, the, uh, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council is uh, losing its shit, would be how I would probably describe it. Now, every budget, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council is unhappy because they're the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. So that's kind of that kind of comes with the with the job. But no, no they they seem even less happy than usual. They're saying that the government plans to repre- repeatedly breach the national spending rule every year until 2026.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 they're not happy. And you can understand why. I was saying to you before off air, for the last little while, you feel with the fiscal with the, with the council, it's a little bit like... They're just keep saying and saying what they're saying and repeating and repeating. And the government just nods and nods and nods. Yes, 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 I see. And then goes off into something completely different to the point that I can imagine them run, just bursting into a cabinet room now in a fit of hissy fit, peak. And saying, if you don't want me, why did you make me? Why do you have me anyway? Because at this stage, it kind of... It, I think it's a question worth asking. Why the hell do we have them if we're going to completely ignore them? Well, we have them,
0: Michael, because having them was the right thing. And every year we've ignored them because they tend to come out with things like sustainable budgets and making sure that we're not spending more than we earn. Actually, I think that was one of the most striking things about McCoy's statement that we need to pay more tax. The assumption that paying more tax and giving the state more funding will in any way lead to better
1: services. Yes, a weird, weird notion in this country that the idea that you're going to take money and put more money into the leaky bucket, and that somehow that would guarantee inevitably guarantee a higher level and a broader scope of government-supplied services. But do you not think, Gary? I mean, not to be catastrophizing, about. We're starting to see little bits and pieces that, in if you're if you're bad-minded, would remind you a little bit of that period between, say, 2000 and 2007, when For example, we're talking about the expansion in the welfare budget, right? At a time when we don't have full employment, we have more than full employment. And you just have to wonder if, for example, we had an economy which was and was seen to be excessively dependent, not just passively, but actively dependent for revenue on one sector. Say, for example, multinational tech and pharma.
0: And perhaps a sector, Michael, that certain people are saying there's going to be a shake-up in and that things are going to change and we may become substantially less attractive to that sector over the next number of
1: years. And then you over a period of time, maybe quite a short period of time, you saw a significant contraction in that sector, in, uh, which would lead to both a uh, contraction in employment, but also a very significant contraction in in expenditure and now you have a situation where you've gone from being full employment into significant higher levels and higher than projected than pre- levels certainly of uh, unemployment but with a welfare budget which is being significantly expanded on the basis of an economy which no longer exists and then you end up running what, what was our current account deficit in 2008 for it was a 21 25 billion or something you know that wasn't fun Gary and the thing is at that stage Our external debt had been reduced and reduced and reduced down to very, very little. And we were in a position where we could actually borrow substantially without completely wrecking the gaff. We're not in that situation now. No, the,
0: the reliance on corporation taxation is extremely worrying and is not taken anywhere near as seriously as it should be. In the um I'll put a link to this below. It's the actual report that the um that the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council put up there, their pre-budget statement. It's its subtitle is Ireland Must Break With Its Pro Cyclical Past. But there's a particular figure in it, Michael, that I thought you might find and the listener might find particularly interesting. It's on page eight of it. The summer economic statement forecasts a marginal deficit of 1.8 billion for 2023 when excess corporation tax receipts are excluded. Right. This would be the 17th year in a row that Ireland has run a deficit without the help of excess corporation tax receipts. Which is to say that where those something to happen to the excess corporation tax receipts that we have been drawing in it would be very, very immediately bad. And that effectively, our entire state's spending is now reliant on this and has been for a great number of years. So the state, Michael, is spending absolutely more than it should, if it was being prudent. And we are talking of increases in pensions, increases in welfare, increases in everything to offset the cost of living increases. The problem here is that no one wants to be the person who says, "Yes, it will be great to do that, but can we actually afford it?" So we have a bizarre situation where our spending is out of control, but we have a staggeringly large surplus.
1: Yes, and the problem is, okay. Remember, let's go back. Well, I've, since I insist on doing it, to, to continue the par, the parallel, if you remember, the year before the crash, we had one hundred and eighty. Sorry, we had 90,000 house completions in Ireland, right? At, in the same year, the United Kingdom had 180,000 house completions. Now, the United Kingdom is around, what, 15? At the time, was around 15 times larger population. I don't know how much bigger the economy was, but, you know, we'll go on the basis that it was very much a very much larger economy, but f- population 15 times bigger. But they only built twice as many houses. Now that was obviously unsustainable. I mean obviously unsustainable. In a in a in a decent year, our housing requirement is between twenty-five to thirty thousand houses. At the moment probably up around forty thousand because we're for capacity, we're in a significant deficit. But ninety thousand. Now, somewhere over twenty percent of revenue had was now deriving directly or indirectly from income from from the housing sector the from the building, the construction sector so in the words of the, the the department at the time we are now we were actively actively reliant on it now what I, my point is simply this we at the time we knew that i mean those figures were there they were public that was it wasn't a secret this wasn't something which came out of the blue we are in exactly the same position now we know what extent we are dependent on excess corporate tax for revenue. We are running this massive surplus. And it looks like we're going to make exactly the same mistake. Instead of saying, "Okay, we have this money. We want to diversify our economy. We need to be a lot more serious about doing that. And in the meantime, we are going to treat this money as windfall money. We could use it, for example, to pay down debt. We could use it for a rainy day fund. We could invest it in a wealth fund, whatever. But, or, we could make the the other choice, and I think the very dangerous choice, to consider it as normal income and to annualize it into budgets into the budget for annualised budget spending. And do you not think, Gary, that, is the, that feels like, in part at least, the direction they're going to go?
0: No, I think that, that is explicitly what they've done. You're right. If you can't... Do- depend on money like this coming in on an annual basis you're as you said Michael there's lots of stuff you can do with it I would say one of the best things you could do with it is either the debt depending on you can run the maths on that or you can use it for infrastructure but what you yeah. don't want to do absolutely is you don't want to create something which is a recurring cost based on income you cannot guarantee is recurring
1: yes exactly
0: Cost overruns are also increasing massively. They're saying there could be an overrun of 500 to a billion euro just in health. Mm -hmm. And there's one thing they mentioned that I didn't actually realize. The Christmas uh, budget, or sorry, the the Christmas bonus uh, given to people on on social benefits, uh, that cost about 350 million euro a year. And it's not included by default in the uh, budget projections. But the Fiscal Advisory Council is making the point well, we paid it every year for the last 10 years. Maybe it's time to actually start putting it in the budget.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, Maybe time has come, yeah. I, I, did you see, this is only it's tangentially connected, you're talking about cost overruns. Do you see that there was a, a comment uh, made by a, 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 a consultant predicting when the first consultancy would take place in the children's hospital? I didn't. What have we got? Um, well, one one there was one person saying he he, he was confident that it would be happening by twenty thirty.
0: That seems fair. Yeah, I I would agree that the consultation would probably have taken uh, place by that time. Maybe multiple consultations.
1: You know what? Do you remember when we were talking about this first, and which feels like a very long time ago now? And I think both of us had come to the conclusion that when they, when it was all done and dusted, we would never actually know really know how much the thing had cost I am absolutely convinced that that is now the case I think there's going to be so much obfuscation so much covering and so much hiving off a cost here and hiving off a cost there and saying that that isn't really part of the cost and that wasn't part of the program and that wasn't that was an unexpected thing and that was an inevitable thing and that was the war in Ukraine and that was the result of unexpected inflation and we couldn't have foreseen it that the, the numbers are going to be so fiddled and faddled that we're... Ne- we, but it's going to be so much more than we ever dreamed. But it won't make a blind bit of difference when it comes to the government being elected or not.
0: No, no, I, I'm i going... I'll put a link to the full uh, statement, as I said, below. There's some really interesting stuff in here. It is kind of shocking, Michael, how kind of basic and prudent a lot of what they're recommending is... But you read it and you're like, no Irish politician is going to do this. No, no one is going to do anything like this.
1: Well, you remember the story, you remember the story that went round. I don't know if it was true, but I, I'd i say there's at least a 50-50 chance that it was and maybe a lot more that um, you remember Charlie, Charlie McCreevy was sent to Europe. And mm. it was very much believed at the time and continues to be believed that it was simply because Charlie had looked at the, at the books and said, OK, we, we have I think the time we have to start tightening this up and produce a couple of projected budgets going down the line. And Bertie said, not a chance in hell are we going to do this when every single speech in the doll begins with the line with all the money in the country. Why can't we? Why can't we have an Olympic swimming pool in Kilchamock? why can't we have an international running track in tralee why can't when all the money in the country and and bertie not not there's not a chance we talked before about, and when our, our dear dear friends in Finnegale talk like to talk to us about you know fiscal prudence and saving the country from the mad excesses of Fianna Fáil, that the problem is we remember in fact even have copies of Elements of the Finnegan uh, election campaign from 2007. Mm-hmm. And by God, sp- spend, spend, spend.
0: Harder, better, faster.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Um, on, um, not in a financial thing, but on uh, government reports, Michael. Yes. We have a uh, move to lower speed limits. Something has gone wrong, Michael. And something must be done. We must lower speed limits because there has been a rise in road deaths and that, you know, something has to be done, Michael. Our government largely works on the basis that when something becomes a news story, something must be done to deal with it. And so we must lower speed limits. Uh, we had Ben Scallon uh, ask Eamon Ryan about this uh, during the uh, week. And Michael, he said, the science is clear, which at least is slightly different than saying the science is settled, which is the Green Party's usual line. Unfortunately, we were able to remind Eamon Ryan of a report that was put out uh, last year. Well, was, I think, released last year about how lowering speed limits on motorways would actually increase deaths, not lower them. Yes. And unfortunately for us, Leo Veradker was there who actually remembered the report <laughs> and was able to... Uh, pull Eamon Ryan out of the answer because Eamon Ryan certainly was not getting around to it. It
1: it, it very much had the appearance of Leo jumping into the water with the light with the safe with the uh, the lifesaver, didn't it? Because Eamon was about to drown.
0: My the thing I I question here, Michael, is this: the need for something to be done in this instance of this nature, as in to say we're going to change all of the speed limits because when you actually look back at the amount of road deaths in this country in the 1990 uh, sorry in, in 1990 you had about 500 people who died on the roads if you look back into you know the the 80s and the 70s you're looking at 5 600 people dying a year on the roads yeah. even into the early 2000s you're still looking at over 400 and then by 2010 it halves and it's it's at about 200 and now when you come to the 2020s we're averaging, you know, kind of 150 maybe, uh, sometimes below, sometimes above. By any metric, Michael, Irish roads are incredibly safe and have been getting safe at an incredible pace over the years. Now, as someone who lives in rural Ireland, I heard the roads that are Uh, misclassed in relation to speed limits. Yes, absolutely. That's because of the system we use where if your road is classed as, you know, if it's a national road or a regional road, it gets a default speed limit, which is sometimes incredibly at variance with the road. This isn't a proposal to fix this. No. This is a proposal to impact all of those roads again. So you'll have very good roads that don't need their speed limits lowered at all and terrible roads that shouldn't be in the same classification. This to me, this seems nearly the definition of make work we have seen a dramatic fall in road deaths. Yes. I would imagine part of that is car safety standards. I think a lot of it is behavioural. Everyone, I think, who grew up in my time can remember those ads of kids just getting totally taken out of it by speeding cars.
1: I think also the, just the expansion of the motorway network, because we know our motorways are amongst the safest in the world. And I think motorways are just generally safer than a lot of the back roads in Ireland. So the fact that so much more traffic has gone onto to the motorways has made it has, i think has been part, has been a factor in it but gary do you not think that uh, i think i take the point that you're making regarding the nature of the roads the ar- the arbitrary system that we have is absolutely to the point if you, there are lots of roads around where i live where i am the the, the 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 speed limit is probably 80 kilometers an hour would that be right and i there are many of these roads where 80 kilometers an hour would be too fast. Absolutely, in my, my belief, far, certainly too fast to be safe. But this is absolutely the definition, it seems to me, of that horrible thing, you know, I hate that, but it's a virtue signaling. It, they're going to do something. They're going to pass a law, which makes them look like they've done something. But if you don't have a system in place which is actually going to impact on people traveling on those roads at that speed, then nothing is going to change. So, are we going to see people? Are how are you? Are you going to see? Are you going to see speed traps on these roads? Are you going to see cop cars on these roads? Are you going to see? How? If you're going to have police on these roads, how are you going to man them? Where are you going to get the? Where are you going to get the guards from to do this job? If you are going to put them, if on the on on the basis of current resources, you're going to take them away from doing what job to do this job unless people have a, some kind of an expectation, put it this way, if I'm if I'm driving on one of these 80, 80k roads, I'm not driving at 80k, I'm just not, because I don't feel comfortable, I don't feel safe for myself personally driving at that speed, probably going to be driving at 50 or 60k, right? But for those people who are going to be consistently driving at 80 or indeed above it on those roads the only way you're going to make you're going to change their behavior is if they believe that there's a chance that somebody's going to catch them doing that and then to your point there are going to be other roads where it's going to be perfectly safe to travel at 80 kilometers an hour which you're going to be because it's going to be a, it's going to be this arbitrary redesignation and you're not going to be able to do it and on those roads people will tend to travel but they're also the roads where they're far more like because those are the roads you're going to actually, it's going to be more practicable to put some kind of a speed trap on. And you're going to you're going to catch people on those roads which aren't actually dangerous at all.
0: I mean, they, they said they're not going to touch the motorways and the primary uh, routes. I think that's probably because of the previous study which said that that would kill people. Yeah. But I think, yeah, you, you bring up a, a solid point. How are they actually going to enforce this? Uh, because the roads that they're mostly moving down are roads... So, again, someone who lives in rural Island, you very rarely see police on.
1: But sorry, can I ask you this question? Sorry, Gary, to cut across you. They say the science has settled on it or whatever. The science is, is clear. But is it actually true that the number of deaths in the country has gone up?
0: So that was the interesting uh, thing, because I, I assume Eamon Ryan is referring to the idea that the speed of the vehicle when it hits someone is, is a very strong indicator of, of the likelihood of fatality or when it hits yeah. something. That's all things other being equal. That's probably fair to say. But we had, um, Chambers come out and say that his phrase was that there had been a really alarming spiral. Yes. With 127 deaths this year. Now it's September the 6th. We've what we've three months left in the year. In 2021, there were 137 deaths. So 10 above where we currently sit. In 2022, there was 155 deaths. Now, let's say we go above that, Michael, and we go to 160 deaths in the year. That is one of the lowest rates of road deaths that Ireland has seen since 1960. There would not be a single year before 2016 where we had seen that few road deaths. It is one of the lowest rates of road deaths in this state since, well, maybe it's foundation or since the widespread adoption of cars. Anyway.
1: Okay, so just going back to the, what was the first number you gave me? What was the year?
0: So, 2021, there were 137 deaths.
1: Okay, 2020. So, that was a COVID year, was it?
0: Uh... Weirdly, and and this is legitimately weird, when you look at like the COVID years, 2019, 2020, 2021, they actually have they have less road deaths than you know the early 2010s, but pretty much in line with what you would have expected. Like 2019 is 140, 2020 it's 147, 2021 it's 137. And that's coming down from like 154 uh and 2018 was 135 so like it's it actually didn't really make or it doesn't seem to have much of an impact which is kind of weird actually
1: but my because my question my follow-up question is this. is it not the, que- the case that when you're looking at the statistics what you the two things you have to take in mind are the number of cars if is the number of cars on the road stable like is population stable or cars on the road stable and the number of miles traveled because that's how you work out your average is not i mean if, if the number of miles traveled is the same the number of cars is the same but the number the the number of deaths has gone up then you have an increase but if you have an expansion in the number of road of more miles traveled and an increase in the number and uh, combined with the number of cars on the road but well, then it's a different statistic and we know the population has been increasing and as we come out of covid my belief and my understanding is that the number of road miles has increased so is this, is, this, is this statistic, Does it, is it reflective of an actual underlying reality?
0: It's, it's hard to tell with any of these things. It's hard to tell exactly what's causing it. There's certain things we know for certain, and that's kind of broadly the sex of those most likely to be in accidents, when accidents are most likely to happen, where they're most likely to happen. But if people are coming out and saying this is a disproportionately bad year, statistically, it doesn't seem to be statistically, it actually seems to be a pretty good year. It's still Mm -hmm. going to be one of the best years in the state for road safety. So I would question the necessity of this at all. I mean, absolutely, there are steps that could be taken on this, but there are things like what we discussed, Michael, they are an individual classification of speed limits instead of just declaring that every road which is determined to be a particular type is the same speed limit. Yeah, That is clearly where you could do things like this. But
1: things like this, I,
0: I just don't see the need for this, really.
1: Well, surely the, the need, not to be overly cynical, the need is the fact that we had two terrible tragedies in close together, and geographically and chronologically close together, which created a sense of, oh my God, something bad has happened. And this, the fundamental polit- political response to a situation is something must be done. This is something, this must be done.
0: I think I think you're, like was, I was listening to um, the head of um, the PR manager at the, at the AA, a um, guy called Blake Boland. Uh, he was on radio a while ago and he was saying that, you know, it's difficult to argue against anything that could help reduce fatalities on the roads. And he referenced the, you know, the road deaths we've seen, the tragic road deaths. And I think that's absolutely the wrong way to approach this. What we, care, we should care about is the numbers, not, oh, there were certain cases that were particularly emotionally resonant and yes. therefore we have to have national policy. No, we should look at the numbers and see what is actually happening statistically, because it's just like a crime when we were talking about it, Michael. It's very easy to feel like crime is increasing in ways it's not because the reporting of it reports particular cases that resonate with you. Yes. But that's not the basis on which we should develop policy. We should look at the figures. And the figures say that, yes, we're going to have a worse year than 2021, most likely. Maybe a better year than 2022. But those years are still some of the best in, what, 80 years of the state? 60 mm-hmm. years of the state? So, I don't know. They're saying there was a committee to do this and there were there were many groups involved and it's been a long time in the process. But you think if that was the case... You might have come up with something, you know, better.
1: Listen, I go back to the point I made. You can do what you like. Unless there is a practicable plan for enforcement, then this is, a, this is just nothing but a piece of theatre, which is going to cost money and time and frustration. I'm sceptical whether it will save any lives. But... Uh, and I can't see right now that there's going to be, I don't see how they can produce a practicable plan that is going to help the enforcement of the of, of these speed limits on the kinds of roads that do need uh, better speed control than they're currently getting. Well,
0: I would, I would make a point, Michael, that I think argues that road safety is fundamentally not a question of speed limits in the way that they are looking at it. And it's a very simple statistic. 78% of road death fatalities are men. Yeah. Now, that would probably indicate, Michael, that there are behavioral factors here that are having more influence than the speed limit. Yes. Or the fact that 50% of fatalities occur between Friday and Sunday. Yeah. Those, I think, might be things we might want to look at, perhaps. There was There is actually one really weird statistic I found when I was looking at the uh, the RSA data on this. And there's a couple of reasons it could be, but I just want to throw it out because I'm not sure what actually causes it. And it's this. 66% of fatalities in car accidents are drivers or pedestrians. And maybe a lot of those cars don't have passengers in them. But I would have thought enough to not get a statistic like that. So I wonder if there's something, some behavioral or mechanical reason why that would happen.
1: That's curious, all right. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know what's going on there.
0: Yeah, also we know that most fatalities occur in a rural road, so we know that a, shall we say, a young man, Michael, between a Friday and Sunday on a rural road is far more likely to get into an accident than uh, other situations, and we might ponder why that might be.
1: Yes, yes, it's, what What could that be?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, cars that seem to not have passengers in them. yes. It is a mystery, Michael, which we are simply not qualified to provide any answers for. But it would seem like something a highly regarded uh, stakeholder group looking at this might have examined. Right, I think, Michael, if we will leave it at that, and we will be
1: back next week. Yes, and we shall go now, and well, I shall go and watch some rugby. Come on Ireland, I believe is what we say. See you next Sunday.
0: You said that with an incredible lack of enthusiasm. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's Romania Gary I mean how hard can it be I'm
0: sure there's anyway, a joke about the communists there
1: somewhere have a good one
0: <laughs> hiding in the forest <laughs> all the best